so badly, like some of you run into church like that some Sunday. That'd be, that'd be the coolest thing. All right, if you are staying up here with us, welcome. Uh, I invite you to take out a Bible this morning if you have it with you. Uh, to the book of Mark. And so Mark is right there in the early parts of the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, the second gospel. And uh, we are really in just a second of, of three parts of our series for the Easter season titled, If This Is Love. For many, Jesus is the standard of life. For many people, people look at Jesus' life, his words and his actions, and we think that he sets the standard. And so our goal in this series really is to look at his life and ask ourselves, how is he defining these things? How is he defining what we should actually be looking at and living and and how we're supposed to be operating in life? How is he laying that out for us? And my, my prayer is that through this just small Uh, Easter celebration series that we would better understand uh, who Jesus is. And I think if we do that, if we're constantly trying to do that, that we're actually going to see that he is far more trustworthy than we've ever thought him to be. And so we just phrased out that question, if this is love. And like I explained last week, I know that sounds weird, right? Because usually you'd ask the question like, like, is this love? Right, it, kind of, and, and get the answer there. Is this love? But we want to ask the question, Jesus, if this is love, then blank. So we're looking at different parts of Jesus' life and looking at kind of how he lived and what he said and what he did and say, if we can wrestle the question, if this is love, if Jesus is love, if this is lo- looks like to love, then we have a response to that, I think. If we better understand who Jesus is and what it looks like to love, and so, so don't turn the ears off. Don't think I've sat through decades of Easter services, right? I know where this is going. I know it's Palm Sunday. We're not teaching on Palm Sunday about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Sorry to disappoint you. Right? That's not where we're going today in Mark. We're going to keep unpacking Jesus' life. Because what happens is this, right? The church tends to focus on Palm Sunday. We assume you're going to go to some, maybe some other services or do some private reading throughout the week, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, right? And then you come into to Easter Sunday and you kind of skip things in between, so we're going to look at the in-between period today. But let me remind you, just last week, we looked at the, at the life of Jesus interacting with this young man. All right, the young man, Jesus reveals that, that though the young man lived, what would he would think is an impeccable life. He kept all of God's commands. His life still felt short. His life still fell short of what, what Jesus was calling him to. Jesus was not asking, look, are you more good than bad? Do you do enough nice things to be considered a good person for heaven one day? Because the young man had a question. He said, Jesus, tell me how to inherit eternal life. Like, Jesus, tell me how to, what's the secret to heaven? Right? And Jesus says, well, keep the commands. And, and he lays out some things. And the young man says, I, I've done those since I was little. We find out this young man's got some money and some stuff. And so Jesus says, look, sell everything you have. Give it to those in need and come follow me. And in that moment, that young man's heart was revealed. He could not separate out a love for Jesus and a love for his stuff. See, that reveals a question. Like, Jesus, that seems harsh. But perhaps it's actually loving. 
If this is love, then I'm actually interested. Jesus, if this is love, to speak truth into hard places, then I'm interested. See, Jesus speaks truth into really hard places. Man, he went right after the guy's heart. He didn't, like, dance around it, like, oh, this is awkward, sorry. But, um. And here's why I think the story gets locked in on, like the whole money piece. But don't miss what he said at the very end, right? We even touched this last week because we would have been here like four hours. Right, but he said, look, sell it all, come, follow me. Like, that's ultimately what Jesus was all about. It wasn't about selling this stuff. It was about, and what would it take this guy to come follow him? Is that love? And I think, yes. Jesus speaks hard truths in the hard places, man. He walks right into the tough places in our lives. And the young man, it says he, he, he left disheartened and sorrowful. And it's hard to hear that, but Jesus wanted him to have the full truth in front of him. Just like he wants you and he wants me to have the full truth laid out in front of us. See, in love, Jesus, through that story, reminds us that we're not left on our own. And if we are, if we're without Jesus, there is no promise of eternal life. In fact, we're not promised much at all. With Jesus, what is promised? Man, there, there is peace, and there's hope, and there's joy, and there's forgiveness, and there's a relationship restored with our, with our Heavenly Father. Right? Yeah, there's suffering, too. <laughs> it's a big part of Jesus' teaching, actually. In love, Jesus speaks truth, even when it's hard to hear, even when it's hard to first understand, but it's ultimately given for our good and for his glory. And so out of that, really, we move into today, again, just traditionally Palm Sunday in the church calendar. Today's traditionally celebrated as the day that Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, the start of Holy Week, a week that just sets emotions, interactions, and events that piece by piece by piece moves Jesus closer and closer to Golgotha, right? To the cross. And I want to come in this morning into a portion really towards the tail end of that tale. So if you have a Bible, this interaction is going to take place just prior really to the crucifixion. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 15. You can follow along with me says this, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. 
Would you pray with me for a moment? God, as we just spend a few moments this morning to look at your word, I, I pray the truths of your scripture would be buried within us. That your spirit would knit these things within our minds, that we would think them over, God. If my words are not helpful, please help these people to forget that. But would your word, the scripture, and the truth of it bury itself within us? Would we wrestle through it and see the truth of this story all knitting together your plan of redemption, God, in your name. Amen. So in this scene, Jesus has been brought to Pilate, right, and the decision is made ultimately regarding Jesus and his life on earth. Kind of the background going into this, right, Jesus again came into Jerusalem, that Palm Sunday event, is, why do we call it Palm Sunday? Because Scripture tells us they took palms off the trees and laid them down, put cloaks in the ground, right? a sign of respect as he came in. It, it probably wasn't the masses of Jerusalem, but a contingency of people showing what honor and glory and reverence to Jesus. And as he came in, it, really, it began to set in motion events that were triggering one thing after another. We met on Thursday night with our men's study that we're going, the equip study that we're going through, and how this set of events was really began to be talked about way back in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, God begins to talk about what this will bring to fruition. It's fascinating. For me, it's actually one of the most encouraging passages in all the Bibles found in Genesis 3, when Jesus has already talked about. That when mankind rebelled, Away from God, God already began to have set in motion a plan to rescue them. His grace shown again to them. And this is what we see happening here. Jesus had come into Jerusalem, right, and certain things had begun again to happen. Communion with his disciples, the Lord's Supper was instituted. Jesus spent time in prayer with them. He spent time in prayer alone in the garden, pleading with God, communing with God. If there's any other way, for this to come to fruition, man, Lord, take the cup from me, but if not, okay, it's me. He watches Judas walk away to set in motion his betrayal. Jesus is arrested. There's ears being cut off. There's just straight reactionary emotion being evoked from his disciples. Like, how, what's going on? They're kind of panicking, I think, at this point. Because though Jesus had been rejected and he'd been pressed against his entire ministry life, it had never come to this point. Like, there were always people pressing on Jesus, disagreeing with what he was saying. This isn't new. But I wonder for his disciples who are watching now violence become part of this, kind of mob mentality starts to surround this, right? We know that they probably began to wrestle. In fact, we see, right, if you look back just one page probably in chapter 14, Peter's denial of Jesus. It was foretold of but Peter, right, the rock. On you I'm going to build my church, he says. Straight up, Peter's like, I'm not one of his. All this pressure, all this pressing in on them begins to happen at a very hard and fast rate. And Jesus now finds himself before the council. Being tried, being pressed in on. But the problem is this, there's actually no guilt found in him. If you look back to chapter 14, 
verses 56 and 59 that they're actually interesting and very encouraging. 1456 says, For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. And verse 59, Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So what's happening, man, the, 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 the religious leaders, the Jewish peoples, religious leaders, the council, it's called, Sanhedrin's part of that, a high priest is certainly there. They're trying to get other people just to come in and tell lies about Jesus to show how horrible of a person he is, right? And even their lies don't match up. And so just even the, the listeners sitting there is like, this doesn't make sense. And tells us there's no guilt found in him in this very moment until verse 61 of chapter 14 comes into play. And Jesus is asked a question by the high priest, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And verse 62 triggers an outrage of emotion. It says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Verse 63 says there's rage, there's accusations that Jesus is doing what? He's blaspheming God. He's saying he is God. Jesus has not broken any Roman law. He's not murdered anybody. He's not smashed a window out of anger, you know, throwing rocks. He's not beating anybody up along the pathway. He's not stolen a donkey from anybody. This is what it all comes down to. That question and Jesus' response. And by Jewish law, that consequence of his choice of words was punishable by death. But there's a problem. See, the problem is the Jewish ruling council did not have the right or ability to be able to do that under Rome. They couldn't actually put... Jesus to death, being ruled by Rome. Rome must be the one that convicts somebody. Rome must be the one that sentenced somebody. And that makes sense, right? I can't be the one who decides for, for my little block of State Street and Summer Street. I'm going to just decide, man, who deserves what judgment? Right? Portsmouth Police Department will be visiting my house very quickly. I say, well, but listen, listen, I live here. This is my block. And I'm a, by the way, I'm a pastor. So I, what I say I think can go, right? Please say, that's ridiculous, <laughs> And that's kind of what we see happening here, right? The, the council knows they can't actually put in to act what they want to see happen. Because let's be honest, what they're saying is, man, we take this very seriously, and we should, right? If anybody comes and says, look, I'm God in the flesh, like that should be concerning to us today. And so I get the concern of, of the Jewish people here. Like, you say that you're the Messiah that was prophesied thousands of years before? Like, this is you? I've got some concerns. Because not only was Jesus saying that, what he was actually doing, right, didn't match up with what they thought he should be doing, right? He was actually working on the Sabbath day. They were really offended by that. And other things, he was actually putting to death different laws that they were trying to hold up as man-made, actually. So the one thing, the one thing the Jewish council could do was this. They could bring them to actually be brought before a Roman official. They could bring Jesus to Pilate. Pilate at this time is just, I know it's a ton of context, but it's helpful, guys. Right, Pilate at this time is in Jerusalem, and he shows up typically around this time during the Passover just to keep the peace. 
They, they know he's present, and they know that there's no like, hey, you did something wrong. Let me go ask Pilate about this. I'll be back in a few days. They know in Jerusalem, Pilate's right there. So that peacekeeping law governing is right in their backyard. So Pilate comes. Obviously, Passover's important festival and feast. Pilate's there to help keep the peace. And the result is the whole council is listening and trying Jesus and trying to get Jesus convicted by Pilate. And so what we see now in Mark 15 is a very important moment between Jesus and Pilate. All of Jesus' words in this moment, all of his actions are under a huge microscope. Like, everything that Jesus is going to say with Pilate, every action he's going to make, right, the, the Jewish council is just watching him, waiting for one more thing to weigh for him, in his, not in his favor, right? Pilate's looking at him, trying to understand what all this has happened. Man, there's people here, they're mad. We know that the whole Jewish council carried weight in the Jewish people, so Pilate has to kind of watch the political realm here now. Everything that's about to happen is under a microscope of scrutiny. Pilate, I think, just wants to understand at first exactly what is the exact offense of Jesus here. Like, what is it? What's his stance? What's his position? Why have you brought him to me? But he also has in mind that, yes, this Jesus, he wants to understand what's going on here, but he has to keep the peace. See, Pilate knows that if riots happen or an upheaval of society takes place, that reflects right onto Pilate as ruler. Pilate finds himself caught in this weird kind of middle ground right here. Right? And if you're familiar at all, just church history, or, or you've been around the Bible for a while, the church for a while, right, you know what this interaction is going to lead to. You know what this interaction between Pilate and Jesus with the whole council is going to work its way towards. But listen, we know it's going to the cross, but don't miss what's revealed in this middle ground period. See, there was not a gavel dropped right away, right? Jesus, Jesus was not instantly condemned. It seems that Pilate, I think, does try to take some time to understand what's going on. And we're going to look at really just strictly Mark's account here. It appears that Pilate knows at least the claims that's being brought before him because he asks, are you king of the Jews in verse 2? There's no other insight given preceding that. So, so Pilate gets it that this guy, Jesus, has made some claims, and he just wants to get clarity. Like, like, are you claiming to be king of the Jews? And that's, why is that an important question? Why do you think that might be an important question? Kind of look for your thoughts here. Why do you think it's an important question? Like that framing of, are you king of the Jews? Why do you think that might be an important question to Pilate? It's more than like a one-word response. Any thoughts? Perfect. Yeah, nice. Well done. Right? Who rules Rome? Caesar. Do you think Caesar wants to play ball with other kings in his, in his uh, land that he governs? Not interested. So that phrasing that he claims to be king of the Jews, Pilate is highly interested in that. Pilate is not supreme ruler. Caesar is. Pilate cares about Pilate. I think Pilate likes his job, likes his lifestyle. 
right? Wants to keep being the rule in the position that he's in. See, it appears that the Jewish right, authorities don't accuse Jesus of blasphemy, per se, to Pilate. Because, honestly, I don't think Pilate would have taken interest in that. But rather, the accusation here comes with challenging Caesar's rule. And that is a capital crime, punishable by death. The Jewish authorities are not fools here. So Pilate is handling the, the information he has, trying to understand what's going on. And in this dramatic presentation of Jesus, in great attempts to find guilt and injustice within it that will just end this whole ongoing investigation, this attempt is made not on guilt, not on injustice, but on semantics. And that's fascinating. But what's even more miraculous to me is Jesus' answer. Again, verse 2. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. As Jesus right now stands on trial, fully aware. Jesus, like just so we know, Jesus was fully aware. He knew that what his guilt verdict would send him to. Like Jesus fully God, he knew what all this would bring to fruition. He would go to die on the cross. Jesus is fully God, fully man. He, he could feel pain and emotion. He knew what this was about to set in motion. And Jesus' only response is, you have said so. See, Jesus in this moment effectively stands silent. This silence was foretold over 600 years prior to this moment. Isaiah 53, 7 says this, He, meaning Jesus, he was opposed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus' silence bring to fruition words spoken about him over 600 years prior. And the silence of Jesus here is not a symbol of fear, of, of just kind of not having the words to say. It's not even a guilty verdict. I believe his silence is an expression of love in this moment. See, it's so hard to imagine this, but Try. Try just for a moment to put yourself in that scene. You're standing before somebody who has the power to take your life out. And you know that you're standing there being accused of something that, that you have not done. You know that in your deepest conscience, you are 100% innocent. What would your reaction be? I'll tell you what mine would be. Self-defense. Like, I'm looking to preserve my life in this moment. Like, I'm looking to make a case for myself that's very clear, well thought out, articulated clearly, that, that I'm not guilty of any of those things. That I'm not to be even the, in the place that I'm in, same before Pilate, in that moment. But that's not what we see here. Imagine what his disciples must have felt. They spent time with him. They know him. 
they know that he is nothing worthy of that conviction. He, Jesus does not deserve a fine of anything financially, let alone a death penalty. And then as his disciples stand listening, as all that's taking place is charges that are brought against him, right? The, the shout of the crowd, the attempts to speak words of, your, of their mouths, but to just stop as they try to come out for fear of what might happen to them. Inside, in that moment, all those disciples must have wanted is for Jesus to speak. Those who had followed him, they'd given his life to him, right? Think about Peter, right? Peter's fishing. He says, Peter, look, put your nets down. Come follow me. And he does it. And Jesus did it time and time again, right? We don't know. Maybe Lazarus is here, right? Lazarus, right? I'm coming to, I'm coming to eat your house tonight. You know, Lazarus becomes one of Jesus' followers. All these people who have, have been following Jesus are now mingled in with this crowd, and they're watching Jesus, and they just want Jesus to say something. Defend yourself. Get yourself out of this. And all they hear is silence. And in a moment, the words of the prophet Isaiah and the fate of Jesus are coming to fruition. See, last week we had to wrestle with the question, is truth being spoken to the young man and a heart being revealed, is that really love? And today it's a different question. Today we see silence. Is this silence by Jesus really love? Like, is the fact that Jesus chose to say nothing actually love? This is a hard question to wrestle through. Again, because in his silence is also the complete understanding of the power of Pilate and the desire of the crowd. In Jesus' full deity, his soon-to-be-broken body that will be abused and will continue to be broken again and again in the hours coming, Jesus chooses silence. And if this is love, what will we do with this? What will I do with this? Like, will silence instead of defense lead me to think of weakness? Does Jesus' silence in this moment make me think like, man, Jesus, you're just weak. You, you could have undone all this. Why didn't you? That seems just unwise. Maybe God's not wise. I could think this way. But I would press you to think a little bit differently. That Jesus' silence is not weakness, but perhaps it leads us to understand its willingness. As Pilate continues on in all of this interaction, it's apparent to those around him that the crowd will not be satisfied with simply a trial and a quit. And move on. The crowd wants action. And now as that kind of narrative unfolds, we continue to see Pilate trying to remove perhaps Jesus from the spotlight of the cross. However, behind Jesus the entire time is the cross. It's always been there. Again, in, in the shadow of the manger is the cross. 
you would love to know your supreme purpose on planet Earth, wouldn't you? You, you would love to know, man, what is that one thing you're meant to get after in your, for your entire life? Your supreme purpose, why you're created, why you're designed the way you are, why you have your quirks, why some of you think the toilet paper should go on the back way versus the front way, right? It should be on the front, just so we know, okay? Right? Why, wouldn't you love to know what God is doing with all that? Jesus never once wrestled with that. Jesus always perfectly knew, I believe, what his future was to be. And in this moment, we see the cross no longer being a shadow, but now an image that's getting greater and greater clarity. Its outline that was once fuzzy out there is now becoming kind of clearer and clearer and clearer. And we see willingness to go to this cross. As Pilate continues on in this interaction, right, he's attempting to understand, like I said earlier, and there was a custom around this time. The custom was just to release a convict, someone held in captivity. It's an odd custom, but the reality is it was only done so that Pilate or whoever would be ruling at that time right, would keep the people on his side. Keep the masses happy. Ruling becomes a little bit easier. So it was done by Pilate to show his graciousness. His Pilate trying to show how kind he is. And, and again, to keep people on his side. And, and so he presents these options. Jesus, who is innocent, or Barabbas, who is known to commit murder and even and robbery. And verse 11 of chapter 15 tells us the crowd being swayed by the chief priest demands for the life of Barabbas to be set free. A murderer, a robber, they're saying, yeah, we want him. Let that guy go. And in that moment, when Jesus knows he is fully innocent, he stays silent. Like Again, this is un- unbelievable to me. I, Jesus had nothing in his, right, there, there's no rap sheet, there's, there's no, like, let me take out Jesus' file, let me just show you, like, he did these misdemeanors back in the day, but it was, it was juvenile, so we let it go. Like, there's nothing of that for Jesus' life. Barabbas robbed things, killed somebody, and Jesus never once makes a defense for himself. He never once tries to get out of the fate of the cross. He remains silent. And again, the temptation here is to think, this is weakness. This is illogical. But maybe staying silent is exactly what divine love looks like. So often we think the loudest, the most verbose, even the most obnoxious at times person is right. Those that have a crowd, that have a following, we're tempted to think like, man, look at all that's going on. They must have it right. But what we see here in the life of Jesus, I think and I wonder, is more what divine love looks like mouth that stayed quiet 
the same Jesus who said, look, when you give, right, do it in secret. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Same Jesus said, look, when you pray, go into a closet. Don't stand in the street corner just babbling on and on. But do it in silence. Do it in quiet so God listens to your prayer. Here's your heart. Perhaps divine love is more silent and subtle than we've ever thought it to be. And so in this moment, in this last attempt, Pilate asks a direct question to the ever-growing loud mob. Verses 12 to 15, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to please, to start to satisfy the, the crowd, released for them Barnabas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The desire is clear here. Crucify him. Pilate says, why? They don't give an answer. They just declare, crucify him. See, Pilate, though he appears to make the death of Jesus really the Jewish authorities' fault, it's him, though, who has rule and reign right now. And he declares the cross to be deemed fit for Jesus, but let's make sure that we scourge him prior. And just so we're all clear, we know what scourging is, right? That's a whip that's got metal or bone or glass put in it. With scourging, there's no set number of lashes typically. It's until that leader would deem fit to be enough. Often scourging an individual, which is raking that whip across individuals' black, back, often from the rib cage all the way around them. Right? Often they would die in that far before they, they got to the cross. Pilate is guilty here. At the end, he sentences Jesus to death. In the end, the silence of one and the volume of another leads Jesus to the cross for sinners like you and me. And the prophet Isaiah reminds us again back in 53 that this is all for a purpose. Look again on the screen. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs, this is Jesus being talked about, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, this Jesus, this perfect life, this silent voice was all in step with love being poured out to us. He was pierced for our faults. Jesus was, was crushed for our sin. All this, this heart-wrenching brokenness of humanity was placed on him Right, was meant to bring us into peace again with God the Father. Isaiah is completely right that we, like sheep, have gone astray, meaning our lives are not lived as God would want them to be. We sin, we struggle, we're broken. We often choose our own desires and plans far before God's own. 
time and time again. But God in his mercy, instead of having his wrath poured out upon us that we rightly deserve, pours it out now on his own son, Jesus, in this moment. The silence of Jesus is no weakness at all. It's a willingness to be faithful to the plans of God, set in motion before the beginning of all time, for you and for me. See, don't miss the key. It's trusting in this Jesus. It's trusting in this Jesus for the removal of our sin and the brokenness that we have. Right? We're broken not just because we're human, right? But by, because we're human, we are broken. Right? This is like, it's not just human, like, oh, it's just kind of how we have to live with things. Like, no, by the fact that we're human, we inherit this brokenness. And therefore, there needs to be a right establishment back with God again. We're not born with the innate goodness that we think we're born with. We're born with brokenness. And how do I know that? No parent, no parent begins by teaching their kids no. No parent sends out, like, what's the first word that mom and dad try to get their kid to say? Mom or dad. No parent ever said, say no. Say no. When I ask you, say no. Well, why not? Oh, I believe there's just an innateness in us. There's a propensity. We, we learn those things fast. We cannot miss that in all this, like this silence that led Jesus to the cross, it's actually for you. It's for you. That we would be restored from our brokenness and from our sin into right standing with God. Look, if you've somehow been convinced of or convinced yourself that, that all we need to do to get to heaven one day is just be a good person, that's not what the Bible teaches. And I'm sorry if this is the first time you're ever hearing this, but I would be a horrible person if I knew the truth what the Bible says and didn't tell you it. And if you don't believe me, read it for yourself. This is not sacred for just me. Like, it's the same Bible you have in front of you. And then when the Bible says like that, to just be good enough, it, it's not there. Like there, there are no scales. Like have more good than bad and, and in the end you'll be okay. There's Jesus. There's just Jesus. And in this moment of Jesus' willingness to his silence to go to the cross, Jesus effectively throws out the scales. He says, it's me. And look, today, right now, you can be forgiven of your sin, your brokenness, past, present, and even the future. And you can be restored to a right relationship with God the Father. That answers that question what the young man asked last week. How can I inherit eternal life? Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And then live with Jesus. I would love to talk to you more about this, but so would everybody else here who knows Jesus. At least we should anyway. Like, that should be the natural reaction. Like, if you know Jesus, like, you want to talk about Jesus with other people. 
because he is the most amazing, humble sacrifice ever presented before humanity. And so we, I think, have to ask ourselves this morning, what do you think about Jesus in this moment? Through the angry mob, through time with Pilate as he's moving towards the cross, you have to wrestle with what do you think about Jesus right now? If this is love, then what? If silence is love, then what will you do with that silence? Because that silence led Jesus to the cross. So do we reject it because it doesn't make sense? Or perhaps we accept it because it's the purest form of love that's ever been put on display for us. Do you know that there's a reason why 99.9% of movies have some sort of redemption quality within them? All right, like our, our family is currently just continuing this Marvel experience together, right? So we're watching these Marvel movies, right? And we love the hero. Like we love the scene of good winning over evil. Like we, we love that. But it's in almost every movie. And perhaps you've seen those one or two movies that don't end well. Like good comes out on top. Or sorry, good does not come out on top. Evil wins at the end. And you live... What just happened? Why is that? Why do you think you leave with that sense of longing for more? Because I believe that deep within you, innately put within you, is a desire to see things restored to what's good again. And so we watch movies to be entertained, hoping that will give us some sort of sense that things are going to be okay. Look, you can know things are going to be okay because Jesus shows us that right here. What will you do with this? See, I believe this is love in the purest form that we could ever know it. The love of God shown to us to choose silence over a loud voice, to choose willingness, not weakness, that went to the cross. See, if this is love, and then I want to know more of that. Like, I want to know this love of Jesus in deeper and grander ways than I understand right now. I want God's love for you to be seen as, as, as huge in your life. Like, I want you to know this God in a deep and rich way. It was Jesus' love that was shown in his willingness to endure this brutal plan. And my prayer, through a greater understanding today, is that our love for Jesus would grow more and more. That we would be in awe that he willingly went to his cross. His silence speaks volumes of what love is. Don't forget who Jesus was. Like if, if Jesus is the God of the Bible, man, he could have said in a moment, like angels, just take them out. And they would have done it. Like game over. Like Jesus is not like, oh, what happened? Like no, he would have been game over. But in his silence, this never shows weakness. It shows willingness to go to a cross for you. And if today you're sitting there thinking, I've heard this, I know the gospel, I've trusted Jesus, right? Would you challenge yourself to actually live that way? 
I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what that exactly looks like in your life. But I know I don't always live that way. <laughs> like, I don't always live my life convinced that this is true. Like, there are times where I, where I, man, I, I liken myself to the New Testament author who says, Lord, man, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. I, want, I would challenge you to, to live by faith in this moment, to respond to Jesus, to respond to his silence as a willingness, not a weakness, for you. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would just work and, and accomplish whatever it is that you want to work and accomplish in our lives today. Lord, I, I openly pray and, and hope that there's someone that does not know you, that has not trusted you as their Savior, Lord, that you would uh, even now draw them to yourself. They could be restored in you. They have a right relationship with God, their Heavenly Father. Their sins are forgiven, past, present, future. Their hope is secure. And for those of us, Lord, who have, who have made that commitment, Father, would you help us to live in it? To live for your glory to live as a people who trust in your willingness today. We pray these things for your glory. Amen.